Next Chapter Podcasts. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to you. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend. The king of these for Angelo. Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. I will sit right back. Waiting for the gift of sound and vision And I will say Waiting for the gift of sound and vision That song was by David Bowie from the 1977 album Low. It's also number 251 out of 500 on my podcast, The 500, with Josh Adam Myers. And I'm Josh. You're listening to the only podcast that's going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest records from 500 down to one. Also, it's done by a comedian talking to his famous friends. And if you're looking for in-depth info, this might not be the one, because this is a discussion about life, the album, and Gashluki. You want to watch the podcast? Well, you got to subscribe to the Patreon. There's only one way to see the full videos of me and my guests each week. Join the Patreon for $5 a month. You get to watch full videos. And for $25 a month, we're giving away merch. And I'm talking coffee mugs, t-shirts, posters, hoodies to the Fleece Army. I will give you an official ranking in the Fleece Army. And you get to support the people that work on this incredible show. Peter, my editor, Emily, my booker, the, the flagships of why this ship is moving are those two people and JT and Morty and me, but go to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast or find the link on our website. Our guest this week is comedian and actress and returning guest of the 500, the one and only Margaret show. Listen to her podcast, the Margaret show. Just so you know, this episode was recorded on June 8th. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms or anywhere you get your pods. And if you can leave a five-star rating and a review, we would appreciate it. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. I post clips daily. Email the podcast at the500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Here we go with number 251 out of 500 with Low by David Bowie. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to see you. I feel like the last time I saw you was when we talked about The Cure. I think so. I think it was. I think so. Yeah, Yeah. it's been a while. How's your dog? She's good. Thank you for asking. So we can leave this in the episode because I'm just telling to everybody out there, um, you know, take your dog to get routine checkups Mm. if there's nothing wrong. Because people I feel like just neglect there's a guy, yeah. the dog's fine and yeah. I don't want to spend the money. And I was smart enough to get health insurance for her mm-hmm. when I first got her. 
I got her like, you know, in 2016 and, and she had diarrhea like three times. So I, so I was like, well, I'm going to, I kept my, my dog trainer kept telling me to bring her in. So mm-hmm. I would bring her in. It, it was $250 a pop that made me go, I'm getting the insurance. And then I just set it up where they pull it out of my account and thank God how much I've, I've needed that recently in the last few years. But uh, I brought her in for a routine thing about, I think it was December of 2022 and she and literally in November, I brought her in for something else. It, she was fine and they did the stethoscope and they found that she had a heart murmur and they realized that dobermans have this thing called dilated cardiomyopathy i think mm. i'm saying it right which is basically the heart is her left side of her heart is big but it's also not working hard enough mm-hmm. and and it's, it's like congestive heart failure in a dog yeah and, and we got it we got it very early the they identified it they did the echocardiogram and she was and she was you know like they're like all right so she has it and it could get much worse you have to change your diet you have to do this you have to do that give her this medication that's super expensive and we did and so this and then but then i was like because i just took her to my vet and they had like a random uh cardiologist come by just to do it who used to work for the the hospital that i went to today but today i went to the Schwartzman Animal Medical Center, which is really the best one in New York, if not in in America, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it was massive, this place. And and they did the echo and she's she nothing's it hasn't gotten worse. So yeah. that's good. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like she's responding well because she's not showing any signs. That's the yeah. craziest shit. You're like. You're like when I brought her in, they're like, yeah, she's a heart problem. I'm like how the dog, how would they know? Yeah. It's so hard to know. Like they don't show it. So it's so hard. Yeah. So my, my, my dog, my dog is basically Bob Fosse. She is, she <laughs> is a, uh, an alcoholic uh, choreographer who might drop dead on the corner of, of 22nd and first, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make some magic together. Doom, I love it. Doom. Do you see her? Hold on, where is Hi. she? Hi. Hi, like a dog. Wait, like a Hi. 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 Lucia, come here. Lucia, come, come here. Want to say hi? Lucia. If My only face. I was at home. Yeah, I know. You have you have like you have like a, a cornucopia of pets. Ah, <laughs> look, look. Oh. <laughs> hi. There you Sweetie. <laughs> But it was funny too, though, Marg, because they they were like, because when I texted you and I was like, can we bump it? Because the appointment was at 11. And and I think even my booker, you immediately like, oh, yeah, of course. My booker was like, if there was anybody that would be cool with moving it because of a dog, it would be Margaret. So, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of I have a, I go to the vet all the time. Yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. there's so much because I have three cats and this dog. So it's <laughs> insurance saves me. Oh, my God. Month. Yeah. Dude, so if, if you have a pet and you don't have insurance, like I get it, it's an expense, but dude, yeah. Lekka has better health insurance than I do. It's worth yeah. it. It's definitely worth it. Like I have my SAG insurance. Has, Your chihuahua, my chihuahua has, what? has it. My has chihuahua it. has it as well because he's had pancreatitis and oh yeah, gallbladder yeah. problems. Yeah, he needs it. It's crazy, yeah. man. It, it's like this is like. Like I got it just on a whim and and realistically, if they would have been like, we're going to, you have to pay it. You have to go to the website and pay it every month. I probably mm-hmm. would have forgotten and it would have lapsed and just cause like, Oh, she's fine. Like I don't need it. And yeah. dude, I mean, it is paid for itself. And they all, and the, the, the insurance that I have, they don't offer anymore at nationwide because mm-hmm. they realized it was like, yeah, we fucked up. We should have never offered this. So <laughs> 
90% of everything is covered. If I get her nails clipped and I submit for it, I'll get 90% back. Everything. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's it great. Is great. Congratulations! Congratulations to you. You're doing. You're the like. Aren't you the like the? You're leading the pride march on Sunday, or? Yes, I'm the grand marshal. What is that? What does that entail? You ride in a car. Nice. Um, and so my friend and I are going to dress up as um, Madonna and Sandra Bernhard in the '90s when they were on the David Letterman show and they made out. They're wearing like denim shorts, jorts. And sequin bras, that iconic 90s look. And so I'm very excited. That's going to rule. This episode is coming out on Madonna's birthday, actually. Is it oh, really? Amazing. Is mm-hmm. it That's really? That's my birthday, yeah. Are you going wow. to see, Mark, are you going to go see Madonna in LA when she comes around with this tour? Yeah, I would really like to. I'm going to really try. I want to see also um, Bob the Drag Queen, which is really great, who's yeah. opening for her. Mm-hmm. So she's got a lot of, she has a lot of comedian friends. So what? I definitely want to go. Did you see her promo to like release mm-hmm. the tour? I mean, it was like, I mean, it was such a, it was such a weird random mishmash of performers uh, because it would be like, why is Judd Apatow there? Like, <laughs> like out of well, she loves comedy. So she's like immersed herself in like, you know, emerging comedians, established comedians, and also different genres of comedy. So it's interesting. No, it is. I, I'm going to be on tour for the original, when she does Madison Square Garden, but then I think she's doing it again in in like November. Hopefully, I think she's doing Barclays, but I'm going to go out of my I've actually because of not because of you, but I think these bands that I'm about to mention, I feel like you'd you'd appreciate. I've seen Depeche Mode. Yep. I know you're a Depeche Mode fan. I love you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love them. Yeah. I mean, you talk about like he's dude. David is the goth Bruce Springsteen. Like absolutely, he, absolutely. He gives you every ounce of his energy. He's and amazing. I mean, he was so incredible. I'm going to see The Cure on oh, the yes. 20th. <gasps> amazing. Did you go at, in Hollywood? Did you go to the Hollywood Bowl? No, no. I was actually working and I haven't been able to see them. So I'm, uh, uh, but a lot of my friends went. I mean, I, I want to see them this tour if I can somewhere. I'll see. I, I'm trying to figure it out. And then on a, and then these are just, I mean, I don't know if you would even appreciate these two, but I'm going to mention them because these were both like whim concerts. I was like, yeah, I'll go see seal. I went to see seal uh-huh. at the uh-huh. beacon and it was arguably one of the most fun. Sh- I went as a joke. Like I went as I was just like, Oh, this will be, he'll do kiss from a rose. He'll do crazy. Uh-huh. And one song uh-huh. in, I was like, I was like, I would make love to this man. He yeah, is he's a beautiful guy. He's gorgeous. Great. He's so good. And then, and then I've seen the last, well, Monday, was it Monday? Yeah, Monday and Tuesday of this week, I went to see John Cougar Mellencamp. And oh, yeah, I, yeah. It just ruled. Rockin', he, yeah. It's, he has so many hits. Like, I think we forget, you know, he's sort of like Billy Joel. We kind of forget how big of a, an impact they have on music. You oh, know? For, he's incredible. I've seen Billy Joel since... Since I've since I moved to New York City, I've seen Billy Joel eleven times at Madison yeah. Square Garden, and I just took mm-hmm. my sister. I love that you said that because it's like, and this is like a good starting off point to dive into Bowie, which is like when you talk about certain artists that probably had more, like Mellencamp probably had more top ten or top twenty hits than Bowie ever did. But when you talk about iconic and just this whole you know character or 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 legend of them like bowie who like i said didn't have nearly as much success record sales it's just but he is this guy that i mean we're talking about him i don't think we're ever going to talk about mellencamp on this list Mm -hmm. you know it's different it's different 
way different. You're, when you're talking about Bowie, you're t- it's not just the music. You're talking about like his 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 fashion. You're talking about the image that he was putting off, what he was saying, and and everything that was behind the music, and then even like the people he was associating with. Um, you know, the eras, I, I, yeah, the eras of him. He he a lot like Madonna in a lot of ways is because he would sort of reinvent himself through each uh, album album cycle. Yeah. and become a totally different artist, sometimes adopting a different name. He would play with the idea of society and society as a kind of um, like a, it was like, almost like a chemistry set. Like he wanted to sort of do things to see what society would do to react. And so he's just an incredible, not, a, not only a musical genius, but kind of like a, a marketing genius, yeah. a branding genius. Yeah, yeah. When did you first, like, like when did he come into your life? I think probably uh, there used to be a TV show called uh, Rock Show, and it was on at 4 p.m. on Saturdays, and it's where they showed music videos, and uh, it was where I saw the video, uh, I Am a DJ, and I just thought it was the coolest looking thing. You know, he's like walking down the street, and all of these people are coming and grabbing him and kissing him, including men, grabbing him and kissing him on the mouth, and he's just like super cool walking down and I thought that guy is so cool I wanted to find out more about that guy and then of course from that point you know it's probably like uh late 70s early 80s you got the jumping off point of all of the back catalog and then going forward and then got really really into him later and saw him many times in concert worked for him a little bit um and so I I really got to know him as an artist sort of a little bit as a person not huge amount but Um, I just admired him so much. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Take me, take me into like the first actual album you bought by him. What was that? The first actual album was probably Changes One, which is like kind of, it's actually a compilation of hits. Yeah. You know, and um, Changes, it's just such a a great radio single, but it's also odd because it's got that weird like piano lilt in it. There's something about um, 
the way that the chords, uh, it goes down, like the descending, it's a very pop kind of thing where it's, there's certain things that I love about the way that he writes. And that's like a very signature thing that weird thing about his voice that kind of is both falsetto and gravelly. And then mm. lots of things in between in the mid ranges. He's so interesting as a singer, but I love changes as a song. It's so melancholy, but it's also cabaret as well. Yeah. So that was probably the entry point album. I mean, what are, that's most what, what I would normally do when there's like an artist that you discover and you're like, all right, well, they've already got 14 albums. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna, I think I'll just get the greatest hits and just start there. Yeah. And then it's like, you listen to those hits and then you're like, oh, I like this. And then you start venturing off into the records. What was the first actual record then after, after the compilation? The first after actual record was, uh, I think probably Hunky Dory. And it, it, Hunky yeah. Dory is actually my favorite album of, of all of his records, because it's one of those ones that you just like can go from beginning to end and really listen to it as an album. Low is a little bit less so. Yeah. Low has amazing highs, but it also has some very strange, very long instrumental tracks that yeah. are deep cuts that very are really decent. different. So um, I think, yeah, Hunky Dory always will be one of my favorite albums of all time and certainly my favorite of david bowie's i mean this was a hard listen this wasn't very easy like i mm -hmm. i i you know i listen to a lot of the music walking around new york or i listen to it you know on when i'm at the gym and i put this on and i'd already listened to it a few times but i put this on at the gym yesterday and it was like i started having a panic attack I mean, there's like there's like moments of it where it's just like you said, it's just long instrumental. And I don't know if that's the Brian Eno aspect of it. This was a hard listen. This wasn't this isn't my favorite David Bowie record. And this is one of those things where I'm going down the list and we've done, you know, we've done. Uh, I think this is our Logan. Do you have it in front of you? How many David Bowie records we've done so far? Yeah, I'll bring it up right here. We have like, this was, you know, the, the one that we did before this, um, that I think I did with, with the guy from Bush with Gavin, who gorgeous, uh, may, hopefully it was just the internet connection because I don't think he found me funny at all. No. He did. I think the first question I asked him was, I was like, so what was it like being the most sexy man in the world? <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, well, we're here to talk about David Bowie. Aren't uh, we? I'm like, oh, okay. All right. All right. Just the business. All right. Well, you know, he was the one performing without a shirt in Woodstock 99. Thank you. So, I mean, if you're in a band and you're going to be performing without a shirt, you need to answer to that. Dude, his, 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 band's, <laughs> called, his band's called Bush for Christ's sake. I mean, read into it however you want. But for sure, have like have like a like a sense of humor and go, ah, well, you know, you can even be like, well, I'm not that sexy anymore or just just whatever. Just like, no. and then I'll go, no, you're great. No, but it was fun. It was a fun he thing. He still but looks good. He looks great now. He looks incredible. You look great. You've, you've never changed you. either. You, you look great. Go, Thank you. We all look so, great. It's Botox <laughs> and HGH and all the other fun stuff that you do. So it looks like yeah. it was two before this. What did um, we do? Uh, Aladdin Zane and mm -hmm. then Station to Station. Yes. Mm, okay. So Station okay. Station to Station, uh, great record. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's one of his. It's a, this is another one of his cocaine albums, you know. Yeah. And uh, Aladdin Zane. Um, I mean, that was we did that with um, with Ron Bennington, and I remember going through it, and it's just 
I, I don't remember the full track listing, but there are like hit, hit, hits on that record for Bowie. Mm-hmm. The only song that I knew that was off of this record, the only reason I knew it was because Beck had covered Sound and Vision oh, yeah. for this. Did you ever see that? This this was, and this is what sucks, Logan, that you can't bring anything up because yeah. there was a, there was a God damn, it was it was probably like 2011. I don't know if it was Kia or Acura or, or Lexus, but they were doing this there were this launch of a new car and and they they had Beck cover Sound and Vision mm-hmm. with with a 180 piece orchestra of mm-hmm. and I'm talking like woodwinds, horns, guitarists, they had like turntablists, a guy, a yodeler and mm. it's it, he turned this what? It's a it's it's literally like a, maybe like a four minute song. Yeah, he took mm-hmm. Sound and Vision, which is about three minutes and thirty three minutes three on the dot actually three minute song and turned it into this like seven or, or seven or ten minute like opus with movements. And I mean, it was it was a song that because I was such a big Beck fan that when I would listen to it, it just brought up so much emotion and he, he added mm-hmm. such depth to it. Whereas you listen to Bowie's version and it's this like fun and like. Like very labyrinthy, you know what I mean? Very yeah. like you can hear the Muppets in the background singing in the in the corner. <laughs> but I went to the tour when he revisited. So I I saw is it like Sound and Vision? He toured on a new version of the song and a new version of the aesthetic in the early '90s. So I saw that tour, and he uh, came out with that French dance troupe that used to throw themselves. It was they're sort of like French acrobats, and that was like. The woman was blonde and her back was super ripped, but she kind of looked like Amy Mann, but her back was like all muscular. It was yeah. that er, er, like early 90s femininity that was all muscle. Yeah. That very interesting, like muscle bound femininity that was I happening that. in like 91. Yeah. Oh, so love. interesting. It's kind, kind of when Madonna, Madonna got super ripped. I remember that. Very, yeah. Very intense. So she was that. And so he would come out and dance with this woman and it was like she was like flying all over the place. And uh, so that was a little bit of a revisiting of Thin White Duke, but also getting older and um, so revisiting some of the sounds on low as well. So but this song was featured in a new way, in a new recording of it. Yeah. What was the first concert you saw him at? That was the probably the first concert I saw Bowie at. Yeah. That that one, um, I saw Tin Machine. Um, what was Tin later, Machine? Tin Machine was, I think they only toured one time. So that was like in the nine, maybe 99 or something, 2000, something, something like that around then. I also love Adrian Ballou. So Tin Machine to me is actually a great super group. Oh, um, that's who, yeah. I thought that was an album, and I, but it did sound familiar. Yeah. So I saw them. I don't know if it was a full tour. But it was like a special show that I saw them. I can't even remember. It was kind of a small show, I believe, at the House of Blues. Oddly, I'm thinking that's where it was. But that's where they played. Um, So I was able to see them in a pretty small venue. Um, But yeah, and then I, on the reality tour, I uh, had done some writing about Bowie. Uh, and he had uh, taken it and used that as a press release for some, because he wasn't doing press when he was doing the reality tour. So he sent out my writings to to serve as like newspaper space, which was an incredible honor. And then so he got, uh, he invited me to come to several of those reality tour shows, both in LA and in Santa Barbara. So that's when I got to 
meet him and and talk with him. And um, we didn't have selfies. I know there's a photograph of me with him um, at some, you know, somebody has it because I've seen like other other people backstage with him at the same shows that I was at. Yeah. So I know this, the photos exist somewhere because I took them with other people. And um, but I don't I don't have them because we didn't take I didn't. And I'm like a late like a late adopter to selfies. I barely take them anyway. Yeah. What was that like being in the same area as him? Because he's you know, like my next question is like is there is there a is there an artist as iconic as bowie that has this legend i don't think like who would you even put up there who would even be nobody nobody comes close um the only person that i could say i i'm not as big of an enthusiast of the i was part of in the 90s part of the like very um kids table entourage of michael jackson which is super weird and I was there when Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley were getting married uh-huh. and they were at that MTV awards thing and they made out and they were getting coached beforehand on how to kiss. Cause they had not done it. And so they were oh like God. going on and uh, they were, they walked by me, they were laughing and he had lipstick all over his face. And um, Lisa, of course I became friends with much later. I never really got around to asking i kept thinking i'm gonna get to ask her how they were together as a relationship you know but Mm -hmm. i i kept stalling sure because i was embarrassed and then now it's too late so god it didn't it it did look like they were kissing for the first time yeah they were (laughs) it's like there's when you when you've already kissed somebody at a certain point like you you know which way they go and it's just it's smooth i mean it was so forced and and odd and it's like I get what they were trying to do with Michael. It's like, no, he's not gay. He's not into kids. Like he loves this woman. And yeah. whether he was or he's not, whether he's just a, a, an asexual human being that doesn't really have like any male or female, like, you know, identification where he's mm-hmm. just like asexual, like it's still like, it just seems so weird. It's so, so, weird. It's so weird. But, but that, the, I think that's what's maybe like the, the the star power of somebody like Michael Jackson maybe comes close, but also not really, because I don't have the same deep relationship to him as I do to Bowie in my heart of hearts in terms of music. Yeah. Uh, Morty, who used to work on the podcast, I was, I don't know how we were talking about it. We were talking about Bowie and I was, oh, I was asking about one of the records and I was like, was this a big record when it came out? And he goes, every time Bowie put out a record, it was big. It was yeah. like an event for yeah. every single record like it just it just took over and not, not maybe so much radio but that's what everybody was talking about everybody was so fascinated it, you mm. know it, it, is, is it is it more the image or is it more the music because an album like this this doesn't grab me as like oh this is this i'm not gonna sit here and say it's not it's not artistic or it's not brilliant because i know there are people out there that are probably that are listening to this episode that are probably like this is my favorite bowie record because of mm-hmm. x y and z for me it just didn't click uh, I don't hate it. I just don't mm. like, I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't tell anybody to listen to this as a Bowie listen. I think there's so many other different records, but you know, well, what is it? What is the thing that draws us all to Bowie? There's um, I think it, it, it's both. It's both like this. It's the hooks. It's this image that you're tying with 
the uh, the man and the music. It's also the different eras that he's going through in a lot of ways. Like again, like Madonna, kind of capturing a movement, capturing a moment. I think that's part of part of it. And he really is. Bowie is what a rock star is supposed to be: challenging gender norms, challenging society norms, challenging society itself constantly with music and image. Yeah. But I think that's kind of the one thing about about Bowie. Maybe it's because because he died before he could even, you know, I'm not going to say out age, or but he was, he never felt it never felt forced. It it mm. always felt very natural for him. Whereas like sometimes like especially the later Madonna, it's become you know it's like eh, it's like you know it it just doesn't really fit with what everybody else is doing. It almost seems like she's trying to do something. Bowie never felt like he was trying. From all the things that I've noticed, do you yeah. agree? I don't know. I think it's like, yeah, I think it's also with Bowie too that he uh, rejected fame after a while because he sort of didn't really care. You know, I think that Madonna is still very fame hungry and very yeah. uh, starving to get that spotlight and that Bowie sort of can retreat from it in a sense, take claim the throne, whereas Madonna is, of course, very deserving of the throne, doesn't always take it in the way that you yeah. want her to she's not yeah. so dignified and allowing other artists to sort of take center stage as bowie would do with the killers or placebo or these bands that he really liked too. Nine Inch so Nails. It's interesting yeah and yeah. i mean sure. he he was like you know he, he he worked with them but it didn't feel like he was trying it was almost like him and they were like making a collaboration whereas mm -hmm. where he was going towards the direction of what what trevor was doing or Trent, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Guess what, everybody? If you're all cut up on the past episodes of The 500 and, and still need something to listen to on those long summer road trips, Next Chapter Podcast has got you covered. They actually just launched a brand new series that's a lot of fun called In the Cards, written and directed by Kevin Henderson. It's an existential romantic comedy about a born loser who takes on fate and changes his destiny in order to win the heart of his tarot card reader. Connor Ratcliffe from the Dead Eyes podcast stars as Gil, a low-level ad man who loses at everything. When the beautiful niece of a psychic reads his tarot cards and informs him that the universe is against him, he vows to change his fortune. Cheered on by his best friend Lex, Gil learns everything about philosophy that he can en route to an epic showdown with supernatural forces. And the cast is great too, featuring Jamie Ann Romero from The Punisher and House of Cards as the tarot card reader, Layla Robbins from The Boys and The Walking Dead as the psychic, and Chuck Woody Iwuju from Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Peacemaker and John Wick Chapter 2 as Gil's philosophy professor. It's funny, it's weird, and it's definitely worth putting on. Listen to In the Cards wherever you get your pods and learn more at ncpodcast.com. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. 
If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. What era is he in when he's making this record? Like, what is what is the, you know, because there's like Thin White Man and... There's the what? What are the other ones? This is um, this is sort of like well, this this is part of the Berlin trilogy. So he's basically living in a little apartment in Berlin with Iggy Pop, which I when I listen to this record, I don't hear Iggy Pop's roommate at all. <laughs> it's very, I don't feel the presence. Um, it's uh, my favorite song in this record. Actually, it's probably one of my favorite Bowie songs of all. Is what "Be is My that? Wife." Yes which is such a gorgeous song. And then if you look at the video, he really, um, it, he, it's kind of crossing the line. It's very gender, new, not, not gender non-conforming. You know, he's like very much trying to be the most masculine thing, which is a groom, but it's not necessarily showing that because he's so um, lipsticked and so tailored. So it's a very interesting image, but it's a, gorgeous song and a really i guess it's written for angela bowie although this is a little bit past the time they were together so uh it's the idea of that but it is like that world weary bowie which is the the funnest bowie yeah all right so here here's what i've got about this so i'm going to try to skip over the stuff you already said because you actually just hit a bunch of the good points so 11 studio record released January 77, uh, less than a week after his 30th birthday. Jesus Christ, he's 30 and he's already put out 11 albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first of the three collaborations with producer Tony Visconti and musician Brian Eno that became known as the Berlin Trilogy. It originated following Bowie's move to France in 76 with friend Iggy Pop to rid themselves of their drug addictions. By the way, I just went to go see Iggy at the Palladium when I was in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, about a month ago and it's him playing with the drummer from Red Hot Chili Peppers and the bassist from Guns N' Roses and then two other dudes and at I mean 70 however old he is in his 70s mm-hmm. I mean fucking murdered it yeah and just I mean just like with with these with a different backing band than the Stooges which I had seen them and I think in 2006 when they got back together um 
it was just a different energy and it was it was it was crazier and the music seemed harder and the jam seemed more intense and what was so cool is you would see Iggy go up there and just and just you know orchestrate the crowd into this frenzy mm -hmm. And then when he would walk off the stage with with all like totally spry and bouncing around, but then when like the music was done and he would walk backstage, you could just see him. It was almost like he was in pain <laughs> walking backstage. Cause I mean, dude, you're in your seventies and you're bouncing yeah. around like that. And you've been doing that for fucking, you know, 40, 50 years. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's gonna, it's your body's gonna hurt. But I thought that was, it wasn't sad. It was like, that's, this is where he gets life. Yeah, that's and rock and roll. This, it's rock and roll and it's and it's the most beautiful thing and he probably goes back there gets an iv bag and maybe i love it yeah it was great it was so he's great. amazing i love iggy pop he's so great but and I, it's but, just yeah he's he i mean this is part of like that he's part of the legacy i think iggy sort of always gets left behind when we're talking about bowie what, for some reason who would it be it's is it him lou reed and are the two big ones and then iggy's kind of like the guy like hey guys i'm, I'm yeah i'm kind of more yeah. badass than all three of you dude so well he was also <laughs> like the most um i really like iconic like he was the one that they wanted to try to be like lou reed saw him as sort of like this oh we want to be like that and and david bowie too want to be like that that's what they like fell in love with iggy pop was just his energy, that feral rock and roll quality. Yeah, that's a perfect way to say it. So after completing a pop album, The Idiot Sessions for Low began in September 76 in France and ended in October in West Berlin, where Bowie and Pop had relocated. RCA refused to issue Low for three months, fearing it would be a commercial failure. Upon release, it divided critical opinion and received little promotion from RCA or Bowie, who opted to tour as Iggy's keyboardist, which I love. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's he. You know what was good about Bowie is that he could like write something and give it to somebody, knowing it's going to be a great song, and be like, "Yeah, I feel like this is better for you guys," and I'm just mm -hmm. going to sing back up, just yeah. to be a part of it. Yeah, like all the young dudes. I mean, that's I such it. a great song, and it's like you can so hear great. it. Sounds like a Bowie song, but you don't. You know, you associate it with um, with the. Mop the uh, thank you, thank Mop you. My brain is my brain is it's just so. I all I can think about right now is the medications to give my dog. That's all I hear in my head as a cardiologist. <laughs> like, so we got to change the food to Royal Cannon. Get her off the, off the whatever you're giving her. All right. Where was I? It divided, critical, blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, it reached number two in the UK and number 11 in the US. Uh, the recording process was unlike any Bowie album released prior. Recording the backing tracks first, arrangement, arrangements were then left to guitarist Carlos Alomar, bassist George Murray, and percussionist Dennis Davis. According to a Bowie biography, Eno arrived just in time for the sessions of the second half of Low after finishing work on the band Harmonia, which would serve as a big influence for the rest of the record. Because Bowie's record label did not give him a deadline of when his next album had to be released, the sessions were open-ended, giving the musicians time to experiment. By the end of the sessions in France, the musicians were mentally drained and fled to West Berlin. Um, and then they kind of break down the record where it's like throughout the record's first half, the guitars are jagged and the synthesizers drone with a menacing robotic pulse. While Bowie's vocals are layered and overdubbed, during the instrumental half, the electronics turned cool. In 77, Bowie said one said side one was about himself and his prevailing moods at the time, and side two is about his musical observations of living in Berlin. Regarding the song instrument split, producer Tony said, we felt that getting six or seven songs with Bowie singing 
with choruses and verses still make for a good album. The making the second side instrumental gave a perfect yin yang balance. Do you agree with that? I think it's an interesting way to look at it. I think it's also weird to have uh, a Bowie album without his voice because it's almost like, why would you not take the most distinctive part of the artist? That's always the one thing that we always think about Bowie when we think about him is his voice. And so to have, um, you know, a Bowie record without that is a, is a sort of a jarring proposition. But I think a lot of the instrumentals work as just, if you look at it like, oh, as a speak standalone piece of music, whether that's but Breaking Glass or um, or Sawa, there's something about it. Like, I, I still think, oh, this is valuable as music, but I don't connect it as a Bowie signature or yeah. Bowie composition. I don't either. I, I, I you know, knowing that Brian Eno basically came in halfway through and knowing what I know about Brian and the fact that we did three of his records early on in the, uh, in the first like hundred episodes of the podcast, it sounds like a Brian Eno record more than it sounds like a Bowie yeah, it record. Does. It's very, it it was, it's those, it's those weird noises. It's trippy. It's like, it's perfect for like, realistically, it's, it's almost perfect for like a nice mellow mushroom trip. It's like something right. that I, it's like, it's not something that I want to like put on. Like I wouldn't put this on in my car. I, I would probably get through the first half and they go, all right. Like, I mean, do you feel that most people probably are listening to the full record? Like, I'd be curious to find out with the fans if they've mm-hmm. actually finished it. What about you? I mean, do you I think cut so. it off? I think, well, there's certain, there's part of me that I really do vibe with that early electronica, which I look at this album as being basically early electronica. Sure. And it's got that feel, that vibe. Like I, I, you know, we listen to Hooked on Bach, which is the, those uh, Wendy Carlos Moog uh, Bach renditions that are so weird and electronic, but it's classical music, but it's made with a Moog. So I do like that kind of, sometimes there's a part of me that I really do vibe with this kind of stuff. And I've I've always loved Brian Eno and, but I, I still just don't associate this with the Bowie record, you know, like I kind of think that's one of those things that you can't take away the artist's voice for him. So I think his musical point of view is so all over the place, but one constant is his singing voice. Do you think this is like Bowie's creative peak uh, in a career full of successful experiments? I think it's just, it's interesting how we're, uh, he was the kind of artist that we allowed to take the time to do things like this. You know, it was an era, it was an industry that allowed for this kind of artistry, which I really appreciate. And so I think that's really amazing. So it's almost a relic of the music business at the time and the recording industry in general. Yeah. So where would you put this in your, in your like level of Bowie records? Obviously Hunky Dory is number one. Number one. Uh, With Ziggy Stardust. I mean, the thing of the, Diggy Stardust and Spiders of Mars, there's one of the greatest records of all time, really you know, is. and every song, every, everything about that record is just so phenomenal. So I, I would probably have to put that number one, but my personal favorite is Hunky Dory. But it's sort of like, if you look at Ziggy Stardust as being a different artist, then maybe then it makes sense. That's its, its own thing. I, you know, it's like, I'm looking over some of the list. I love Let's, Let's Dance. I love... Yeah. Let's dance like right. that. Like let's dance. This the song itself. I mm-hmm. want to do at the goddamn comedy jam. Baron Vaughn did it once and oh, good. went full full Bowie. 
and he's just a beautiful singer beautiful singer and, and yeah. annihilated it but it was one of those things where at the time like i liked the song but i hadn't fallen in love with it yet bowie is mm. bowie is somebody that over the years I've, I've always liked and and the, since doing this podcast i've really dug dug into and like space mm. oddity we've done a million times on the jam heroes is great it's funny that you mentioned hunky dory um mm-hmm. because the first time i heard that was at that that theater the unknown theater i don't know if you ever you might have played it uh it was on santa monica and seward they mm-hmm. did a comedy show there on sunday nights back in yeah. like an uh, uh, 08 09 i think it ended in 2010 and uh the guy that owned the theater was this big cokehead and uh he had a bunch of underling actor people that would hang out there and there's a guy who i still know i won't mention his name because he's still alive um might be still partying <laughs> i don't want to out him but i he put on uh, oh you pretty things mm. and and as an actor he's like he's like acting it out the words and then he does this dance when it like kicks in and it was just i had never heard that before Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it just mm-hmm. like immediately, you know, found it online. And I think that's right around when Spotify was coming out. And so I was able to get to it yeah. you know, very quickly. And I just, I love, I love that record. I, I yeah. but I, I would have to say like, if I'm really ranking them, I mean, Ziggy number one, I, yeah. I would, dude, I would put, I would put let's dance or black star both. Cause I love black star. Yeah. I love black star too. And I, especially knowing, you know, he passed away shortly after it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very apropos and what a beautiful way to end his career and, and his mm-hmm. body of work. Um, I think heroes is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, diamond dogs. I mean, Jesus Christ, like even station diamond is- dogs is amazing. Yeah. Diamond dogs is that's thin white Duke really. Yes. Di- that whole diamond. Dog, I mean, all the main man, you know, era sort of recordings that like, and this would sort of fit in with that too. The druggy excess and like being in the studio with all of these people all doing drugs, you know, there, there's something about that. The glamour of that I think is really appealing. So what, that's what I love. So knowing, knowing you, and if you don't want to talk about it, it's totally fine, but I, I would love to get this. What is the, what is the, probably the most creative thing you ever did when you were using? When I, Oh gosh, I don't even know. Um, the thing about it is that it, it never really, um, it gives you a lot of good ideas, but doesn't give you follow through. So, you know, like I would have really good ideas, whether that's musically or for comedy or whatever, but then I couldn't follow through because I just don't do speed or Coke. So (laughs) if I had twitched drugs and did uppers, then I'd probably be better of uh, an artist, but I, you know, didn't have any follow through. Uh, Fortunately for us, Bowie did a lot of cocaine. So we have some follow through. Right. Yeah. You do have a lot of follow through. I, I, when, I mean, I listen, I could say this about opiates is that it it was almost like Coke for me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I sold I sold the TV show on mm-hmm. opiates on mm-hmm. Oxycontin, killed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the best sets of my life um, mm-hmm. early on in my career were because of opiates and taking the fear away. Yeah. Um, I mean, cocaine, it, it was it, I mean, I, I, don't, I guess I'm not saying I wasn't creative. I did write uh, my senior film project on cocaine. Mm-hmm. which we then which then i got i didn't get sober but i said i'm gonna go dry while we shoot and i did and we followed through with it and it became it was you know it was i got an a on it and and i got into a couple film festivals so 
you know, I think that's that's my Bowie claim to fame, my Bowie moment, I guess, is that, you know, I, I made a movie on Coke, but it's great. Know, thank you. It's yeah. great. Well, there's like there there are certain advantages to drugs because it changes your perspective. Um, yeah. The problem is sometimes the way that I do them, it does, just gets in the way of everything else. So it didn't help me. But I think uh, there is if there's a way to do it in a way that fuels your creativity and doesn't take away from the actual performance of it, then I think it's totally viable. Yeah. Um, right, we have a Patreon question. Uh, this one uh, is from Mark. Would you consider Low to be an influence on Radiohead's Kid A album, specifically the Tree Fingers track? Yes, uh, absolutely. That's a really it's, good. Yeah. There's no, there's a lot uh, because in a lot of Radiohead, I do think, oh, this is actually really inspired by Bowie. I mean, a lot of Radiohead in general, I think overall, there's a lot of Bowie in there. So I think that's really viable. Yes, totally. I, I so do I. And I also think like some of like this, um, it's, you know, it's not as like when they did King of Limbs, they were taking this to like the utmost, utmost tree fingers for sure. Um, definitely, if not Bowie, but Brian Eno inspired as well. But mm. but what I loved about Radiohead is that Radio, Radiohead is definitely pulling from a lot of the people that they grew up listening to, but they're also taking it to a complete different level. But almost when it comes to Tree Fingers, I mean, it's like this that Tree Fingers could be on this record and you would mm. have no idea right. any different. Mm -hmm. um, all right, we have another one. Um, I think you might have already answered this, but if you could pick two bowie records and listen to him for the rest of your life which two are you keeping You're well keeping it would be it would be yeah. ziggy stardust and then it would be hunky dory and that's just you know for me right. i love all right now i'm gonna put the now i'm gonna put the change on this you can't bring those two then i would say uh let's dance and um aladdin Sane. i don't think i'm being i think i would pick who would i pick let me look. I just had it up. Where are they? I'll get off the NBA thing. I would pick, I would definitely, I think I would pick, I think I would pick, uh, let's dance and station to station. Mm -hmm. Station mm -hmm. station's good, man. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love cocaine Bowie. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. So, all right. So you wrote a 2004 blog post about mm -hmm. seeing Bowie and the power of the performer. What do you think he was better at in the, was it in the performance or was it the set list or do you remember any of them or? I think, uh, well, he had a great backing band. He was playing with uh, Gail Ann Dorsey, who's one of my favorite musicians of all time. And she would sing with him um, for the, like uh, under pressure. She would sing the Freddie Mercury part and just, just a soaring vocal and just a killer bass line. She's an amazing artist on her, in her own right. So he had a really cool backing band and he just sounds so great. Uh, all like able to recreate that falsetto, that, that deep, deep Bowie voice, that the crooner, it comes out. And it's just also the mad, the majesty of being in a room with him, which yeah. you, you, you can't even underestimate the power of that. Would you put that in some of the best concerts of your life or what would you Absolutely. say? Absolutely. Those are some of the best shows ever. What was the, what do you think if you had to say, like, if you had to rank your, your top three concerts ever, what would they be? My top three concerts ever would probably be Bowie at the Warfield. Um, oh, wow. They would be Prince at um, uh, 
is it Staples Center? Staples Center? Yeah. And uh, The Pretenders at the House of Blues. Oh, wow. When was that? That was a weird one-off gig. And that was in probably like the mid-2000s. An oddity, a very odd thing. But it's odd to see them in such a small venue. But I absolutely love them. Oh, my God. I would love to see The Pretenders. Yeah. Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or a band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Um... All right. We have another Patreon question. Let me pull that up. All right. So, all right, here we go. So, like Prince, Bowie seemed to move between traditional ideas of gender and androgyny with ease. Are there any current artists that you think that have picked that up? I would say, yeah, well, uh, somebody like um, Sam Smith or Little Nas X. Um, also, uh, I think who does that? Like Harry Styles, mm-hmm. for sure. Harry Styles, mm-hmm. and I think um, that yeah, he really challenges gender norms too. Like, which I think is really exciting and um, and and triggering for a lot of people. Um, you, you made a you you made you made a you brought up Harry, which I think it seems very natural to him. Where it's not mm-hmm. like he doesn't feel like it's trying. Yeah. Sam Smith, I, I don't know why. I just I feel like sometimes artists, and I'm not saying that they're that they're doing it just to do it, like because they know this will this will piss people off. But it, whereas Harry Styles is doing it, it, it's like he's it's almost he's doing it in the style of Bowie, where it's just like, no, I'm just gonna wear this, and this is the music that I'm making, and I'm doing, it. and then it's mm-hmm. like Sam Smith with the because when the way he started was so different than what mm-hmm. he's doing now with that, with the one big song that everybody's in the uproar about. And almost, and then Lil Nas X, where, you know, I, I feel like they're almost pushing it just to push it because mm-hmm. they can to see what they can get. Where I feel like Harry is, is, is I don't want to say easing into the bathtub with it. It's just, he's just like, no, I'm going to wear pearls. And if I'm going to wear a dress, I'm wearing a dress. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, does that make sense? He's very yeah. comfortable. He's very, it, it, it's not, it's almost like he's not even calling attention to it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. not, it's, it's just like, um, it's really casual. He's uh, a casual Friday about it, which is so, I think kind of funny, but I, yeah, I, I, I love Sam Smith. I love little Nas X because they are challenging the norms of masculinity, mm-hmm. which to me is very appealing. I also yeah. feel like it's, it, it depends on where the artist is from. Mm-hmm. as well so like mm-hmm. uh little Nas X is from here so he's very like I'm gonna go against everyone who thinks opposite of me whereas like Harry I think they're a little bit more open about it over there so he's just like I'm just comfortable I'll do whatever I want yeah so and like, little Nas X comes from hip-hop which is very um masculinity forward mm-hmm. and hyper masculinity driven so it's a real uh revolution to see him you know take on these different very femme roles or the sort of glam roles which i i Mm -hmm. I appreciate 
Do you do you think we'll ever get out of the pushback of people wanting to do this where it's like because I don't know, you know, what everybody was saying when Bowie was really challenging the gender norms. But I see what they're saying about Sam Smith and I see what they're saying about Lil Nas X, where you have like the conservative right up in arms and they're throwing fits and it's like, how can they do this and blah, blah, blah. It's like, do you, one, one, do you remember what it was like when Bowie was doing it and what people were saying? And then two, do you think we'll ever get out of that? I think I came to it too late because yeah. I was really like too young to appreciate the first time around Ziggy Stardust. But I can imagine, you know, like if you look at the old gray whistle test or see him on top of the pops and, you know, he's very uh, outrageous looking. And this is the seventies, which is, you know, outside of glam was pretty conservative. So he must have alarmed the the conservative factions. I mean, like, you know, he was just such an odd rock star that I think played with that so much, played with those femme archetypes, played with the homosexual rumors so much. And so who knows? I'm sure that it was an outrage. I can imagine. But what do you think? Do you think we're ever going to get past that? Like, I hope so. <laughs> I would like to think so. Yeah. I would I would really love to see that happen. I mean, it should happen, but people are very attached to this idea of gender. They feel like it matters somehow that we behave in these gender norm ways. I don't know why it matters to other people so much. Yeah, it's like just do your thing. You go and be all Christian and shit and and, yeah, and go to, and go to heaven and go to go to heaven and hopefully, you know, you know, you, yeah. you get to get there and and you live a great life and then these people over here, you know, let them do whatever the fuck they want to do. Like if they want to wear yeah. a dress or if they want to be if they want to identify, you know, as as a woman when they were born a man, like who cares? It's like I don't understand why it bothers people so much in this day and age and you would think that after all the stuff that we've gone through, you know, with with in the world, you would think people would be like, all right, you know, I think it's I think it's gotten worse now because of social media and the Internet, because it's there mm -hmm. and it's and it's not saying it's not saying it's being forced on them. It's just there if they want to look for it. And those well, people we just tend hear to do that. about it. We hear about it more. But Bowie codified mm -hmm. gender nonconforming with Jean Genie, you know, if you don't know if you're a boy or a girl, like it's a, it's a movement. It's a meaningful phrase. And he was the first one and in Prince continued it with, uh, I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I'm something that you'll never understand. So yeah. this is like the very non-binary gender non-conforming is a very rock and roll way to be. And I think that uh, we sort of like forget that somehow, but a lot of people gloss over it think that this is a new thing but it's been happening forever have you gotten a lot of pushback for from your way of life the way you live i mean you know i i know you're you're out and proud and i mean even mm -hmm. just hosting the being the grand marshal of the the pride parade i mean have you experienced a lot of uh, uproar no but i've got i've gotten that like when i'm a talking head on some of the news channels and i've had gotten full uh, on fights with Jerry Falwell and uh, Pat Robertson, RIP. RIP. Um, <laughs> not really, <laughs> but whatever. Um, it's like, you know, that's where you find it when you're kind of like facing off with them in the media. But I don't, I don't find that in my personal life. Like I, I really try to avoid conflict in that arena. 
did you did you kind of try to do what Bowie does and like just when you started seeing the uproar in your in your you know the entertainment version of you did you just go further or was did it did it push yeah, you guess, to do that? Well, yeah, it gives you a lot of courage to look at artists that are very much about that. And so, I mean, Bowie is just an inspiration artistically, um, life wise, aesthetically, everything. Um, a lot of it, even the sprite that I have, I think I love that Bowie was also. Yeah. sober as well so it gives me a lot of inspiration i think there's still an old um meeting that goes on at a sunset sound or something one of those studios that he started so you know i love that i love that musicians have somebody they look to and they go oh there's another way that we can do this instead of doing drugs yeah by the way uh he actually was sober this was largely drug free so he but he had just gotten off of cocaine when he made this uh, they saying he was in a fragile state when he made it throughout the sessions. Uh, he remarked, that was the first instance in a very long time that I've gone into an album without anything like that to help me along. I was scared because I thought that maybe my creativity had to be bound up with drugs, that it enhanced my ability to make music, but that album turned out okay. Do you, th I mean, because I really, I, I didn't rely on them. But I definitely felt like opiates were a security blanket to me when, you know, on big shows, when I had like a mm -hmm. big thing, you know, I always talked about on the podcast is that my mom had to come with me to JFL when I did new faces because I had passport issues and she had a fucking vial of Vicodin ES in her purse. And I took a few of them the first few days I was there. And then the morning, the night before the big, big showcase, I took a bunch and she woke up in the morning or I woke up in the morning and she was like, standing over the bed, like, Josh, did you take some of my painkillers? And I was like, no, no, I didn't. And then she looked defeated and walked into the room. And then in my head, I was like, I'm going to give them back to her because I, I don't need them. And I was like, I'm going to do great anyway. And then I gave him back and we hugged. And then I went on stage and I did only okay. Like I did okay. I didn't, I didn't murder. I didn't bomb. I just did okay. And I always think to myself, like, what if I would have taken those painkillers and gone and done that big showcase would I have gotten SNL or would I have gotten mm -hmm. the big agent? I mean, did you, were, were they in your creativity was like, cause I know, like you said, it didn't, there was no follow through, but did it help the, the performance and, 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 you know, the, the networking or whatever it is. I don't know. Like, I think that it's, so that's hard to t tell because is that something that we tell ourselves? So we don't really know, like we'd say that it made it better. But in reality, maybe that's not the case. You know, it's so hard to know. Um, yeah. It didn't really help me at all because, you know, like at, maybe at the beginning, that's what I thought. But then after a while, you don't take them for any of those benefits. You're only trying not to be sick. Yeah. So my whole thing is like, I'm just such, such a natural for being dope sick that I just can't. All I see is being dope sick like that. It's just never the, the benefits never came through for me. Yeah, I completely agree with you as far as the sickness part. But then it would be like once I took them, it would be like, all right, now I'm ready to rock. But in actuality, <laughs> all you're doing is just getting back to like not being sick. So you yeah. can actually go to these functions and not be exactly. sweaty and disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. I I'm so proud of you. And it's like, I love how locked in you are with it. And it's like, I know it's like we're taking it, it's day by day, but it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And you're such Thank a you. beautiful soul. It's like you glow every Thank time you. I see you now. And I mean, yeah. you're just one of my favorites. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, all right. We have another Patreon question, then we'll wrap this shit up. Um, if they make a Bowie biopic, who should play David Bowie? Well, um, I always 
I did like Jonathan Reese Myers in, in Velvet Goldmine. I think yeah. that's a really great film and um, a great soundtrack with also really great, some covers, but also really great reinterpretations of these glam hits. It's the, the also like reimagining of these glam glam songs. And so I uh, absolutely love the movie. And um, I think Jonathan Reese Myers is a great Bowie. But now, gosh, now. Yeah. who... Um, I couldn't, I don't know. I think that would, you know, we would have to find that whoever does that sort of equivalent to Elvis, that Austin Butler, you know, yeah. who who is the equivalent to that, that new star who's going to take over, but there's got to be somebody. Um, somebody's got that heterochromia. Yeah. Who's got that swagger. Mm-hmm. Um, who's got the do- deep voice and the high voice. It's like the, the, it's the deep voice, the crooner and the screech. It's like, where, where, where is he? So um, I would love to find out. They have to be skinny and kind of gangly, but, yeah. but also extremely sexy and good mm-hmm. cheekbones and, you know, barely any weight on them. God damn. I, I'm like, I'll, for some reason in my head, all I hear is, <laughs> is Daniel Day Lewis because he could do, he could do anything, yeah. but, yes. but, but I mean, he'd be, he'd be, you know, Daniel Day Lewis, you know, 25 years ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. But who does it now? And then, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it could be Austin Butler. You mentioned him. Yeah. But I think Austin Butler, like, but the equivalent of an Austin, as Austin Butler is to Elvis, who is to Bowie, Bowie? Yeah. You know, because I think Austin Butler does such a great Elvis. Yeah. So who is that, that new person going to be? Who knows? Because I think Bowie does have like some kind of alien DNA. There's something about him that really is not of this planet. Yeah. Uh, to all the listeners uh, in the comments, please put who you think would make a good Bowie. Um, all right, let's wrap this up. I love you so much, Margaret. I love this you. Is, you, you. This is your third <laughs> time coming on, and I was really looking forward to it. And thank you again for moving this a couple hours for me. Of course. It's thank really, you. Really did help me. All right. Okay. Uh, what was your fa- I think you mentioned it, but we'll go over it again. What was your favorite song on this record? Uh, Be My Wife. Be My Wife? I love that song. All right. What's your least favorite song on this record? Warsaw. It's too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love that you, just, you knew it immediately. Yeah. All right. What, uh, two, this is a two part, you know, can you work out to this record? You can work out this record, uh, but I would say something kind of low intensity, like Matt Pilates. There it is. There that's, that was the follow up. And then can you fuck to this record? Yeah, you can absolutely fuck to this record. Okay. And final question. What would be the elevator pitch to get someone to listen to this album? Well, that this is uh, a really good glimpse into the record industry at the time in the mid 70s, where you had so much money to do so much whatever in the studio. And they allowed musicians to really kind of play with that. You know, this is like the the era of the auteur. So film was going off in the same way. That's why you have so many great movies from the 70s. This is why we have so many great records for the 70s. And this is an example of that. Yeah, I, I think that was said perfectly. You, you make you make it makes such a good point. Is that the seventies was really when they had they had an abundance of money, and they were like, let's just give these younger people or these artists, whether it was Scorsese or Coppola or Bogdanovich or Bowie or or whoever, they gave them the money and let them have the creative freedom that they needed, and just mm-hmm. didn't meddle with it. The exact opposite of what they're doing now. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is cool that we actually got an era where that actually happened. Yes. Um, yes. Please, please promote away, whatever you want to promote. Um, I'm on tour, so you can come see me. You can find out where I'm at on margaretcho.com. 
All right, go see her on tour, everybody. Margaret, I love you. Thank you I so much you. for coming on, darling. Thank you. All right, bye, guys. Follow her at Margaret underscore Cho and listen to The Margaret Show wherever you get your podcasts. Our new music this week is From the Gallows by I Don't Know How But They Found Me off of the 2022 album Razzmatazz. Next week is Jay-Z week as we go deep into the 2001 album The Blueprint. And if you haven't heard this record yet, you got homework to do. Listen to the record. Stay fleecy. For you I'd die Or kill myself Whichever makes you smile And if I succeed I'll count all your teeth I swim from the gallows and And It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Porn. Satan. Drugs. Therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. 
I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.